Good afternoon, everybody. We are delighted that you are here uh, with us for our Lenten series this year as we look at uh, the gospel in the short stories of Flannery O'Connor. Here at St. John's, we are really interested in the way in which the light is introduced, breaks through the darkness. Uh, And that sounds nice as an image, but as we know in our own lives, sometimes uh, there can be a little bit of contention when that happens. There can be a little bit of hostility when that happens in ourselves and and in the world at large. Excuse me. So uh, this series, especially using Flannery O'Connor, if you're able to read ahead or if you know any of her works, you know that she doesn't shy away from some of these controversial topics. And uh, neither does our speaker today, Rob Surdy. So it's going to be great. Um, So we're very excited to have Rob uh, with us. And we hope that you can join us throughout this series. We have a a great lineup of speakers um, coming through the next, uh, this week and then for the next four weeks um, after that through the um, season of Lent. So we hope that you can make this a regular pattern uh, of this season uh, of uh, the church calendar as we march towards Easter. Uh, through this penitential season of Lent. So I'm going to ask Rob to come forward, and I'm going to pray for him and for our time together. Thank you for being with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Rob. We thank you for the gifts that he has, for the ways in which he has answered uh, your call, Father, to be uh, light in this world. Father, an extension of the light of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would be with him now, that you would be in his words, Lord, that it would be you that we hear, that it would be your conviction that we feel, Lord, that it would be your gospel that makes an impact in our lives, that leaves us changed forever and for the better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's uh, the September issue of Holiday Magazine, 1961 author and essayist and Southern Gothic stylist Flannery O'Connor penned a lighthearted essay about her habit of collecting peacocks, a bird that one literary critic argued shortly after her death could stand as a living allegory for her fiction. In her essay, Living with a Peacock, she explained her fascination with birds began with a peculiar chicken she had whose particular skill of being able to walk both forwards and backwards distinguished it in the world of poultry. In fact, those in the know thought this to be such a remarkable feat that the British producer of newsreels and documentaries, Paid News, sent a team from England to Georgia to document the bird that could walk forwards and backwards. It's a buff Cochin Bantam. From that day on, she wrote, I began to collect chickens. She sought out strange birds, ones with mismatched eyes or overlong necks and crooked combs. My quest, she wrote later in the same essay, whatever it was actually for, ended with peacocks. Let's change the slide. As a child, she persuaded her mother to order peacocks from a catalog. Three-year-old peacock and a peahen, four seven-week-old pea chicks arrived by train from Eustis, Florida. When she died at the young age of 39, there were 40-some peacocks living in pens adjacent to the garage on her family property in Milledgeville, Georgia. Part of O'Connor's fascination with the peacock appears to be that the bird's majestic beauty is concealed by an absurd ugliness, bordering on the grotesque. The upper wing feathers, she wrote, could be borrowed from a fryer chicken. 
while the end feathers are the color of clay. The legs are too long and ugly. They're thin and iron colored. The feet are too big. His plumage gives him the appearance of a playboy wearing short shorts in the summer while bearing mismatched blue-black waistcoat. Analyzing the appearance of the peacock, she wrote, as he stands with his tail folded, nothing but his bearing saves this bird from being a laughingstock. Nevertheless, she said, with his tail spread, he inspires a range of emotions, but I have yet to hear laughter. The usual reaction is silence, at least for a time. The cock opens his tail by shaking himself violently until it is gradually lifted in an arch around him. Amen, amen, says one old African-American woman once cried when she saw the event for herself on O'Connor's property. I've heard many similar remarks as this moment, she wrote, but they all show the inadequacy of human speech. The Peacock features prominently in her novella, The Displaced Person, originally published in 1955 as part of a collection of short stories titled A Good Man is Hard to Find. The Peacock poses a problem of perception to the characters in the story. For some of the characters, the bird is nothing more than a pea chicken. To others, the bird is the figure of Christ himself. These conflicts of perception invite the reader to explore other areas where Fundamental identities are misunderstood. And of course, the story as a whole should disturb you, the reader, who having read it, now has to go evaluate your misperceptions of yourself. The world that you live in, the people you share it with, and the God who rules over all of it. What follows this morning is an exploration of these themes of misperception, identity, the person of Christ, primarily through the lens of O'Connor's novella, The Displaced Person, but we won't rely on her alone. We'll also bring in the American Trappist monk and author and essayist Thomas Merton, who also has many valuable things to say on these themes in his straightforward nonfiction prose. Both Merton and O'Connor were Roman Catholics. Both were American Southerners. Though they never met or even communicated, they did exchange gifts. They did express mutual admiration through O'Connor's editor, Robert Giraud, who visited both of them in the summer of 1959. After a brief introduction to both of these writers, we will work through the story point by point, relying upon O'Connor's story to spark our moral and spiritual imaginations, and we'll use Merton to help exposit the meaning. And we'll conclude our time together with some practical observations and considerations for modern Christians. Let's change the slide. Mary Flannery O'Connor is born in Savannah, Georgia in 1925. She and her family moved to Milledgeville in 1940, and they lived in the Klein Mansion, which once was the home of the governor's mansion in the 1830s. Neither she nor her mother lived in that home very long without tragedy striking Her father, Edward Francis O'Connor, a real estate agent, died from complications due to lupus in 1941. She attended Peabody High School. She scratched her literary itch at the school newspapers as the art editor. She was admitted to Georgia State College. We'll change the slide for women. And she continued uh, her interest in school newspapers, this time as the cartoonist. Change the slide again. 
There's another great cartoon from Flannery O'Connor. Following college, we'll change the slide, she was accepted in the Iowa Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, celebrated graduate-level creative writing program that hosted authors such as Robert Penn Warren, Wallace Stegner, John Cheever, more recently Marilyn Robinson and Paul Harding. Some of her colleagues from the workshop were the first to review initial drafts of some of these books, especially Wise Blood, her first novel published in 1952. Her literary legacy is primarily tied to her short stories, which were published in two collections, A Good Man is Hard to Find, 1955, Everything That Rises Must Converge, published posthumously in 1965. She published two novels during her lifetime, Wise Blood, we've already mentioned, and Everything That Rises Must Converge, named after a short story in the previous collection, also published posthumously in 1965. 1952, she's diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus, the very disease her father died of in her childhood. Over the next six years of her illness, she attended Mass every day, and she would spend her mornings writing, and in the afternoon, she would rest. The majority of her published work was written after the diagnosis, and her writing was sustained by a daily rhythm of Mass, work, rest. She died on August 3rd, 1964, and she had 40 peacocks. There are many authors and critics who've tried to describe the sense and characteristic of her work. For the sake of time, I refer to only one. It's upon hearing of her death that Thomas Merton began working on the prose eulogy that he would publish in The Catholic Mind, 1965. Now Flannery is dead, he wrote in the opening line of the eulogy. And I will write her name with honor, with love, for the great slashing innocence of that dry-eyed irony that could keep looking in the south in the face without bleeding or sobbing. Let's change the slide. He continued, the key to Flannery's stories probably is respect. She never gave up examining its ambiguities and its decay. It in this bitter dialectic of half-truths that have become endemic to our system, she probed our very life, its conflicts, its falsities, its obsessions, its vanities. Have we become an enormous, complex organization of spurious reverences? Respect is continually advertised, and we are still convinced that we respect everything good. When we know too well, we have lost the most elementary respect even for ourselves. Flannery saw this better than others and what it implied. What he meant by respect was what he would later describe in the same eulogy as O'Connor's refusal to entangle herself in contempt. What did he mean by this? Well, both Merton and O'Connor are interested in dispelling our personal illusions our fabrications and our fictitious identities. And we're equally interested in dispelling collective illusions of society. But in dispelling these personal illusions, neither Merton nor O'Connor cultivated contempt for their subjects. As we'll, we shall see, O'Connor in particular lets the thoughts, words, and deeds of her characters expose themselves as their fictitious self is gradually revealed with the turning of every page. 
So there's a twofold respect that Merton is admiring. There's the respect for the true self that causes O'Connor to push past our imagined and false selves. And there's also the respect for the person, whether in their illusion or genuine self, being made in God's image is not worthy of anyone's contempt. That twofold respect enables O'Connor to disturb our fictitious selves without being unnecessarily destructive. It's a delicate balance. It's the key, at least according to this one Trappist monk from Kentucky, to her whole literary project. Let's change the slide. Thomas Merton is born in France, 1915. His father, Owen, and his mother, Ruth, were both artists. During World War I, the family fled to the United States and settled in Queens, New York. Just as with O'Connor, so too did tragedy strike Merton at an early age when his mother was diagnosed with stomach cancer. She died in 1921, leaving him to the care of a father who was for the most part unavailable. Unavailable or not, his father would be dead by Merton's 15th birthday. He attended boarding school in the south of France, nourished a taste for languages, art, and literature. In college at Columbia University in Manhattan, he studied literature and modern languages. Just as O'Connor made many lifelong connections that played important roles in her career, Merton established lifelong friendships with artists like Ad Reinhardt, poets such as Robert Lax, Robert Giraud, who would later become his publisher as well as Flannery O'Connor's publisher. Merton's spirituality is kindled through a chance meeting with a Hindu monk who encourages not to explore Hindu spirituality, but the Hindu monk, Dr. Mahanambrata Brahmachari, encourages Merton to explore the spirituality of his own Christian heritage. He reads Augustine's Confessions and Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ. Shortly after that, he begins exploring Roman Catholicism. He's baptized in 1938. In 1941, he's a postulant at the Abbey of Gethsemane, part of the Order of Cistercians of the Strict Observance. It's in Bardstown, Kentucky. He's accepted as a novice in 1942, makes his vows in 1944. Published his first collection of poems in 1946, but he's famous for a spiritual autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, published in 1948. It makes him the most widely read Christian author of the 20th century. In the midst of the social chaos of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, Merton turned his attention and he demonstrated the same critical insight into individual and social illusions as O'Connor did. Though Merton's weapon of choice was prose and critical essays rather than fiction. He dies December 10, 1968 at a Red Cross retreat facility near Bangkok, Thailand. At the end of his life, he was exploring Eastern spirituality, and in the Eastern spirituality, he discovered some natural rhythms that facilitated his own Christian contemplative practices. He's found dead late in the afternoon, half naked, covered by an electric floor, an electric fan that's laid across his body. It's believed he's accidentally electrocuted while exiting the shower though there is a theory, not entirely without merit, that he was assassinated for his anti-war writings. Having introduced O'Connor and Merton through these brief introductions, we move to directly engaging O'Connor's novella, The Displaced.
person. Let's change slides. The peacock was following Mrs. Shortley up the road to the hill where she meant to stand. Moving one behind the other, they looked like a complete procession. Her arms were folded as she mounted the prominence. She might have been the giant wife of the countryside, come out at some sign of danger to see what the trouble was. So the story begins. Mrs. Shortley is married to Chancy, the dairyman. Both work for Mrs. McIntyre, a widow married for money and inherited 50 acres and a farm upon her husband's death. She lives on the farm with two African-Americans, both of whom are her employees. Mrs. Shortley has come to see the arrival of the displaced person, a man and his family who fled post-war Poland as refugees seeking a new life in Georgia. O'Connor introduces us to this great giant of a woman alongside a peacock. The true self of both the peacock and the woman is hidden from us. The woman is not aware of the peacock, but the peacock is aware of the woman. Both of them have their eyes fixed on the gate through which the displaced person will arrive, but, but O'Connor points out it's only the peacock who's able to, quote, see what no one else can see. From a cloud of dust kicked up by the tires rolling along the red clay road, a priest emerges followed by the displaced person, his wife, a boy, and a girl. It was the priest who had arranged for the refugees to be at the farm, which is a nod to a real-life program where the United States government resettled European refugees in Georgia through the Roman Catholic Church after World War II. O'Connor would later say this real exchange she had with a neighbor is the inspiration for this story. Mrs. Shortley, as well as Mrs. McIntyre, had heard the displaced person's name, but being unable, or more likely unwilling, to grant him the courtesy of pronouncing it correctly, they had been referring to the family as the gobblehooks. The first thing, writes O'Connor, from the perspective of Mrs. Shortley, that struck her as peculiar was they looked just like other people. What had Mrs. Shortley been expecting? O'Connor lets us know, writing from Mrs. Shortley's perspective. Let's change slides. Mrs. Shortley recalled a newsreel she had seen once of a small room piled high with bodies of naked people all in a heap, their arms and legs tangled together, a head thrust in here, a head there, a foot and a knee, a part that should have been covered up sticking out and a hand raised clutching at nothing. Before you could realize that it was real and take it into your head, the picture changed and a hollow-sounding voice was saying, Time marches on! This was the kind of thing that was happening every day in Europe where they had not advanced like us in this country. And watching from her vantage point, Mrs. Shortley had the sudden intuition that the gobblehooks like rats with typhoid fleas could have carried all those murderous ways over the water, directly to this place. Now would be an appropriate time to pause on the story and turn to our other literary companion, Thomas Merton. Let's change slides. It's his Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander where he introduces the idea of what he calls the national myth. And he asks the question, what is the conventionally accepted American myth? 
The conventionally accepted American myth, at least according to Merton, is that, quote, America is the earthly paradise. The newfound land of America represented a world without history, without a past, and being a world without a past, it's not the old world, is it? Being a world without a past, it is therefore a world without past sins. America represents a fresh start, not only for pilgrims and immigrants, but for the entire Western world. To be baptized by immigration, wrote Merton, to leave one's sins and one's past in the Atlantic and start a new life in the wilderness with one's hand in God's hand. That is the visceral and emotive appeal of the American myth. One can see part of this mythology at work in Mrs. Shortley's reaction to the displaced person. To her, he has come from the barbaric past with its murderous ways. But as the newsreel said, time marches on. And Mrs. Shortley, being an American, has marched on herself. She is advanced, unlike the pole in the driveway. She belongs to the future and has self-assuredly moved beyond the evils, leaving it all on the other side of the Atlantic. There's nothing necessarily wrong with a national myth. They are, according to Merton, necessary. The problem with myths, perhaps especially national myths, is not the mythic nature of the story, but rather when the story becomes a strategy to evade the truth about oneself. When a myth becomes an evasion, wrote Merton, the society that clings to it gets in serious trouble. How might a national myth become a strategy to evade the truth? Well, myth becomes an evasion when the truth of a person or a society becomes unbearable. And the pain of the truth causes someone to revert to the myth in order to avoid a confrontation with the truth. An example of evasions relevant to O'Connor's novella because it concerns the American South are Merton's observations regarding chattel slavery. Concerning the national myth as it relates to the South, he said the South, too, was an earthly paradise. Not, of course, at all times for all its inhabitants, there were the slaves. Yet the South, before the war between the states, had this paradise left to it. It still had the wholeness that embraced white and black in apparent unity, even though the relationship was a bit out of order. This unified feudal society was nevertheless conceived as a realistic possibility that did not conflict with the living and efficacious paradise myth. For the South, on the contrary, was paradise, in which the benevolent cultured planters loved and protected the joyous singing darkies. Merton's words. According to Merton, it's the brutal national trauma of the Civil War that destroys that myth for the South. And in doing so, though no one realized it yet, he says it destroyed it for everyone else. Since the Civil War, he continues, the whole nation has been in sin. And the sin has been inescapable. The plantation child had been cruelly awakened and he has faced in himself the cruelty that he did not realize was there. The meanness and the injustice, the greed, the hypocrisy, and the inhumanity. When a myth is busted in a violent and destructive way, 
One can choose to chart a new path, living under the truth instead of the myth, but that's very painful and very costly. Most people simply don't have the grace or courage to face the truth, and so in an evasive maneuver, they revert to the myth to protect themselves. Reverting to the myth rather than the truth, Merton says that the American man and the American woman becomes what he always dreamed he was. Gentle, kind, fair, noble, courteous, yet simple, with the clear-eyed simplicity of the frontiersman, or the noble directness of the Confederate gentleman, the frankness of General Lee. At this point, he writes, the myth is an evasion. The refusal is culpable. The beautiful story we tell ourselves is no longer much more than just an ordinary lie. Mrs. Shortley's own perception in the national myth, as well as the shattering of that myth, though not in her own eyes, is revealed in a number of ways throughout O'Connor's story. For example, as we've already mentioned, Mrs. Shortley thought she was more advanced than the displaced person, whose name we learn is actually Mr. Gwitsak. But as it turns out, it's Mr. Gwitsak, not Mrs. Shortley, and not her husband, Chancy, who knows how to operate the silage cutter. It's Mr. Gwitsak, who expertly operates it along with the rotary hay baler, the combine, the let's mill, and, quote, any other machine Mrs. McIntyre had on the place. Mrs. Shortley believes herself to be morally inferior to Mr. Guitzak. The Europeans, she said, they never advanced or reformed. They got the same religion as a thousand years ago. Only the devil could be responsible for that. But in a very interesting exchange, Mr. Guitzak shows himself to be morally and spiritually superior to Mrs. Shortley because he is not tainted by the sin of racism. Mrs. Shortley recounts an event where Mr. Guitzak caught one of the black employees, a man named Salk, stealing turkeys from Mrs. McIntyre. In her own words, Mrs. Shortley says, I suspect before long there won't be no more blacks on this place. And I tell you what, I'd rather have blacks than them poles. And what furthermore, I'm to take up for the blacks when the time comes. When Gobblehook first come here, you recalled how he shook hands with them like he didn't even know the difference like he might have been as black as them. But when it come to finding out Salk was taking turkeys, he gone and told her, I knew he was taking turkeys. I could have told her myself. Mr. Guitzak is impartial in two important ways. First, as Mrs. Shortley notes, when he first come here, he shook their hands like he didn't know the difference because he doesn't know the difference. Second, Mr. Guitzak holds Salk to the same moral standard that he holds himself, which is why he reports Salk for theft to Mrs. McIntyre. Rather than reacting with anger or disappointment, Mrs. McIntyre took, quote, a long time explaining to the poll, all blacks will steal. She doesn't care that Salk stole the turkey because she believes Salk, because of his race, is morally inferior to her. And he can't help it. Mr. Guitzak, writes O'Connor, went off with a startled and disappointed face. As Mrs. Shortley's personal myth, which as we have noted is wrapped up in the regional myth of the South, and the national myth of America begins to become unsustainable, she takes 
evasive refuge in religion. Let's change slide. Which we're led to believe she's never taken seriously before. She started to read her Bible daily, especially John's Revelation in the New Testament and the apocalyptic sections from the Old Testament prophets. Before long, she had come to a deeper understanding of her existence. She saw plainly the meaning of the world was a mystery that had been planned, and she was not surprised to suspect she had a special part to play because she was strong. Now we're able to see Mrs. Shortley very clearly for what she is, but she is unable to see herself as she is. Her myth, no longer regional or national, but religious, is absolute and unbreakable. And her inability to see herself for what she is is linked to her inability to see the peacock for what it is. Nothing but a pea chicken, she mutters. Mrs. Shortley learns she's going to be let go because she's eavesdropping flees with her husband and her children in the middle of the night. And on the way, escaping from the farm, she has a revelation of God and dies in the passenger seat. O'Connor says that she dies from the shock of it all, contemplating for the first time the tremendous frontiers of her true country. By true country, I suspect O'Connor meant what the literary critic and translator Robert Fitzgerald said when he wrote concerning this story that Mrs. Shortley has become ironically displaced, first physically from the farm, but then spiritually. He observes Mrs. Shortley's religious terms, quote, as they become explicit under stress, are those of the countryside. And by countryside, he meant her religion is that of the myth, the folk religion of the South. But Mrs. Shortley, through death, has been expelled from the countryside with its narrow mythology, and she has been thrust into what O'Connor called the true country, which is the expansive country of God's own kingdom. For O'Connor, salvation, as we'll see later with Mrs. McIntyre, is not a pleasant experience. All human nature vigorously resists grace, wrote O'Connor in a letter addressed to the American author Cecil Dawkins. Because grace changes us and grace is painful. Grace was so painful for Mrs. Shortley, she could not survive it. Let's change slide. Part two of the novella shifts perspectives from the deceased Mrs. Shortley to Mrs. McIntyre, the property owner and therefore the employer of Mr. Gweetsack, the two African-American workers, uh, Astor and Sulk. She appears to have married a man just for the money. He's called the judge. Though according to her, the judge left her with nothing. She has 50 acres on a farm with a palatial plantation home, part of which includes a very productive dairy, several dependent laborers. Despite these significant assets, O'Connor tells us Mrs. McIntyre, she just knew there was nobody poorer in the whole world than she was. Later in the story, she tells the priest, the people who look rich, you know, they're the poorest, actually, because they have so much to keep up. Her sense of her own poverty, despite her immense wealth, is one of the reasons she refuses to fairly compensate her own employees. She believes she just can't afford to. After Mrs. Shortley's death, things seem to be going well between Mrs. McIntyre and Mr. Guisak, so much so that Mrs. McIntyre describes 
Mr. Guizak as her savior. That man, says Mrs. McIntyre about Mr. Guizak, he is my salvation. But things don't stay rosy for long. Mrs. McIntyre comes to learn that Mr. Guizak has pledged to marry his cousin to one of the black farmhands. Mr. Guizak will do this for the fee that covers travel expenses. Enraged at the thought that Mr. Guizak, a white man, would pledge to marry a young white woman to one of her black farmhands, she confronts him with the intention of firing him. Let's change slides. Mr. Guizak, she says, you would bring this poor, innocent child over here and try to marry her to a half-witted, thieving, stinking black? What kind of monster are you? Mr. Guizak explains that his cousin has been in a refugee camp for three years. Six, ten year, he explained to Mrs. McIntyre, from Poland. Mama died. Papa died. She weighed into camp. He pulled a wallet from his pocket and fingered through it and took out another from his pocket and fingered through it and took out another picture of the same girl a few years older dressed in something dark and shapeless. She's standing against a wall with a short woman who has no teeth. She mama, he said, pointing to the woman. She died in the camp. Mrs. McIntyre's unmoved. That black cannot have a white woman from Europe. You can't talk to a black that way. You'll excite him, and besides, it just cannot be done. Maybe it can be done in Poland. It cannot be done here. You have to stop. After a second, writes O'Connor, he shrugged. He let his arms drop as if he were tired. She no care, black. She in the camp. This is my place, Mrs. McIntyre said. I say who comes and who doesn't. Yeah, he said and put back on his cap. I'm not responsible for the world's misery, she said as an afterthought. Yeah, he said. You have a good job. You should be grateful to be here, she added. I'm not sure you are. Yeah, he said. Gave a little shrug. And he went back to the tractor. Let's skip two slides. Because I'm nearly out of time. Shortly after Mrs. McIntyre's conversation with Mr. Guitzak, an old friend reappears, Chancey Shortly. He's back. He wants his job back. And... It's just in time because Mrs. McIntyre has decided to get rid of that monster. And here's Chansey to take his place. But in order to do that, she has to tell the priest that she called so she could get her refugee. They're sipping ginger ale on the porch. Mrs. McIntyre's ginger ale spiked with whiskey. He doesn't know how to get on with my blacks, she says. The priest calmly points out he has nowhere to go. Suddenly in the front yard, the peacock trembles. In O'Connor's words, the cock stopped suddenly, curving its neck backwards. He raised his tail, and he spread it with a shimmering, timbrous noise. Tears of small pregnant suns floated in a green-gold haze over his head. The priest stood transfixed, his jaw slack. Mrs. McIntyre wondered where she had ever seen such an idiotic old man. Christ will come like that. He said in a loud, gay voice and wiped his hand over his mouth. Mrs. McIntyre's face assumed a set puritanical expression and she reddened. Christ in the conversation embarrassed her, the same way sex had embarrassed her mother. It's not my responsibility Mr. Guitzak has nowhere to go. 
I don't find myself responsible for all these extra people in the world. The old man didn't even hear her. His attention was fixed on the cock who was taking minute steps backward, his head against the spread tail. It's the transfiguration, the priest said. She had no idea what he was talking about. Mr. Gweetzak didn't have to come here in the first place. The cock lowered his tail and he began to pick grass. He didn't have to come in the first place. The old man smiled absently. He came to redeem us. He reached for her hand and shook it and said he must go. That's the first and only moment that this ungainly bird who's haunted the entire story reveals its true self. And this revelation takes place during a conversation about Mr. Gweetzak, a peacock, and Christ. Perhaps the bird, having revealed his true self, is a foreshadowing of Mr. Gweetzak's true self and even Christ's true self. Mr. Shortley has determined he's going to rid himself of his competition, blames his wife, blames his wife's death on this man. Mr. Gweetzak must go. The murder occurs as Mr. Gweetzak's reaching under a tractor to repair it. He's lying flat on his back, his legs sticking out from under the machine. Here's in O'Connor's words. Mr. Shortley had got on the large tractor and was backing it out from under the shed. He seemed to be warmed by it as his heart and strength sent impulses up through him that he instantly obeyed. He headed it toward the small tractor that Mr. Gweetzak was working on, but he braked it on a slight incline and he jumped off, turned back toward the shed. Mrs. McIntyre was looking fixedly at Mr. Gweetzak's legs lying flat on the ground. She heard the break and the large tractor slip, and looking up, she saw it move forward, calculating its own path. Later, she remembered she had seen the Negro jump silently out of the way as if a spring in the earth had released him, and she had seen Mr. Shortley turn his head with incredible slowness and stare silently over his shoulder. She'd started to shout to the displaced person, but she had not. She had felt her eyes and Mr. Shortley's eyes and the Negro's eyes come together in one look that froze them in collusion forever. She heard the little noise that the pole made as the tractor broke his back. The two men ran forward to help, but she fainted. When she came to, she saw Mr. Gweetzak's dead body, covered by his wife and his children and also the priest, who slipped something into the crushed man's mouth, O'Connor tells us. Beholding the scene, O'Connor writes that Mrs. McIntyre could not quite take, quote, hold of what was happening. She felt as if she was in some foreign country where the people bent over the body were the natives and she was the stranger. Like Mrs. Shortley, Mrs. McIntyre has been transported to a true country through the death of Mr. Gweetzak. He came to redeem us, is what the priest said. Mrs. McIntyre being unwilling to receive redemption through his hard work, unwilling to receive redemption through the priest's gospel, receives the tragic redemption of being violently removed from her familiar homeland, which she built upon her personal illusions and fabrications and fictitious self. She has been thrust into the true country through this experience where unlike the dead Mr. Gweetzak and his grieving family, or the priest who's covered in blood, she's not a native. She's a stranger in God's country. She's displaced herself now. That is the beginning of her salvation. 
The story ends with Mrs. McIntyre abandoned by everyone except the priest who comes weekly to feed the peacock. And O'Connor says to explain to her the doctrine of the church. It's 1955, and O'Connor explains in a letter the displaced person, he did accomplish a kind of redemption that destroyed the place which was evil and set Mrs. McIntyre on a new kind of suffering. Not purgatory, as St. Catherine would conceive it, which is realization, but purgatory, at least, as a beginning of suffering. We're not accustomed, you and I, to speaking about redemption as a painful thing, but if we remember O'Connor's letter to Dawkins where she wrote, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful, then we will better understand Mrs. McIntyre needs to change. That change is painful. And so if Mrs. McIntyre is to be saved, she must first suffer. It's Mr. Gweetzak by his life as well as his death that acts as a catalyst for Mrs. Mrs. Shortly as well as Mrs. McIntyre's translation from a false country of their own illusions into the true country of their undefended self. And in this translation, in displacing them from themselves, they find themselves for real. And that is their salvation. I'm already over time, so I don't feel bad going over time. Further, I'll close very briefly. I think it'll take two minutes. Practical considerations that you can take from this story to enhance your Lenten devotion. Number one, all of us in the room should consider the serious possibility that we're living an illusion. That we have a false and fictitious self we have built up with our own hands. Thomas Merton, quote, Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about that man. Consider the strong possibility you may have a false self. Two, consider the strong possibility that you have an evasive myth. It could be personal, regional, national, or even religious that you might be using to protect your false self because you're too scared to confront the truth. Merton had the insight that we always seek other people to blame for the tension we feel in our false selves. And who are the people you're most likely to blame for your personal, cultural, regional, national, or religious trauma? Who are they? They are the scapegoats that you have chosen to protect yourself from a confrontation with reality. Number two. Number three, God's purpose is to destroy the false self. It is his purpose and plan with everyone in the room. He wants to destroy the false self without destroying the true self. This will feel like death, but it is the only thing that will bring life. All human nature vigorously resists grace. I've heard it three times now. Because grace changes us and change is painful. And finally, focus on your one problem. Your one problem is not the person you have scapegoated to protect you from reality. Your one problem is not the group of people that you have scapegoated to protect yourself from your reality. Merton 
Therefore, there is only one problem on which all my existence and all my peace and all my happiness depend to discover my true self in discovering God. Four things that if you commit yourself to, you will be very blessed, but not pain-free. Thanks very much.